Okay, Psalm 112, praise the Lord. Bless the man is who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desires of the wicked shall perish. Our uh, sermon today is um, Exodus twenty-two sixteen through 31, and it's entitled, That Which is Morally Right. It's very similar to last week's sermon in that it's uh, very few pictures of Christ. I don't think I, I found any. It's more just uh, the mechanics of the law. Next week, we'll get into some interesting pictures of the Lord with some of the uh, feast day information. And I want to tell you that I typed the uh, Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat sermon, which is going to be in about 10 weeks. I typed that this past Monday. And I have never seen so many pictures of Christ in a single, like, 10 verse passage. Unbelievable how every single detail of that Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat points to Christ. Every, I had to leave so much out because, I mean, it would just be a 50-page long sermon. You'd be here all month. But literally, it is the most astonishing thing. But we also have passages like this, which are for the, the building up of the society and for the rule of the people. And so that's what we're going to uh, through today. And uh, before I read the sermon text, I want to, uh, again, I did this during the Prophecy Update, but I want to acknowledge the uh, the work of um, Doug Callerson, who he paints a painting for each one of our sermons and uh, he emails me a copy of it so I can put it in the sermon. And for those that are watching on YouTube, I would ask that you would just stop and look at the artwork. I usually put it sometime after the sermon text while I'm talking, maybe after the text verse. Uh, it is just so beautiful. The, the robe of the woman and the child, which we talk about uh, the, the widow and the uh, orphan uh, in this passage. It, it, it's just so beautiful. The work he did was... It's my favorite ever. It is just beautiful. So um, just wanted people on YouTube to pay attention when we get to that, uh, when I put that online. Um, let's see here, uh, Exodus 22, verse 16. If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal will surely be, shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any god except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not charge him interest. 
If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be uh, with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. And you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. In analyzing passages of the Bible, it's often hard to see the context and how things are put together. The verses we'll look at today appear to be general and without any seeming order at all. In fact, this is so much the case that the great Bible scholar of the past, a guy named Charles Ellicott, notes this about them. He says, the remainder of this chapter, meaning all the verses we're looking at today, contains laws which uh, it is impossible to bring under any general head or heads, and which can therefore only be regarded as miscellaneous. Now listen to what he says. Moses may have recorded them in the order in which they were delivered to him, or have committed them to writing as they afterwards occurred to his memory. Though it is true that they seem random and miscellaneous, they are not. There's nothing arbitrary about them, and they weren't haphazardly written down as they came back to Moses' memory. Proof of this came to me on the 30th of January, 2013, which is actually, what, three years and one day ago, um, as I was reading this particular passage. From verses 22, verse 28 through 2313, a chiasm is formed, thus showing intent and purpose. I'm going to include and explain the chiasm now, and then hopefully remember to do so again next week as we look at those verses of chapter 23, which complete this chiasm. If these verses have been so structured, then all of the verses we look at likewise have purposeful order. There may be another chiasm which spans the rest of the verses as well, which I just never found. They're not easy to find, but when you find them, you can detail them. So I'm going to go through this. Um, I entitled this, Help Your Enemy If His Donkey or Ox is in Trouble. All right, and it's uh, the subtitle I gave is Love Your Neighbor as Yourself. So um, the first part of the chiasm is the letter A. It's at the top and it's at the bottom. You shall not revile God. And at the bottom it says, no mention of the name of other gods. Okay, go to B. Oxen and your sheep shall be with its mother seven days. B, rest on the seventh day so oxen and donkey may rest. You see, there's a pattern between them. C, you shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. C, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. D, you shall not circulate a false report. D, keep yourself from a false matter. E, not to show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. E, not to pervert judgment of your poor in his dispute. You can see there's logic and order. Uh, and then the anchor verse is an enemy's ox or donkey going astray, help him. All right. So these things are found all the way throughout the Bible. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of chiasms. They span entire books of the Bible. They span chapters. They you know, span uh, individual chapters and over individual chapters. They are not random. They are purposeful. And it shows us that there is purpose within the Bible at all times. Our text first today comes from Psalm 119, it's verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Today's passage contains a ton of details, just like last week. So many so that if you try to remember them all, you're going to leave here mentally exhausted. 
Instead of trying to take everything in, simply sit back and enjoy the sermon. Everything you hear, whether you remember it or not, will help you to piece together some other part of the Bible as you read it. And I was talking to my friend Sergio this week, and he said something exactly like that. He said, I love your sermons, and I'm not trying to brag here. I'm just saying what he said. I love your sermons because when I go back and I read a passage from the Bible that I've seen in your sermon, I say, oh, I remember that, and I know now why that's there because Charlie explained it. And he said, that's why I don't like life application sermons is because you don't get any Bible with the life application sermon. Then he says, you know, six hours later, I don't even remember what the guy talked about. And it's the same with this. When you go home, you're not going to remember what we talked about, but you will be reminded when you reread the Bible, if you are rereading the Bible. So please reread your Bible. Okay. But this is why I believe that this is the best way of, of having a sermon is to detail what the Bible tells us and why it is in there, rather than telling you how to run your life. If you've got this right, you will run your life properly, okay? Just like the chiasm, which jumped out of the pages at me one morning three years ago, things will be enlightened to you a little bit at a time because you have a sound base of knowledge to build on. And so let's get into these verses today and enjoy all that comes at us from this superior word. Let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is offenses against God. This is verses 16 through 20. Now, verses 16 through 20 may seem disconnected, but each actually defines an offense against God. The first is indirectly so, because when a man defiles another man's daughter who is not betrothed, he is acting against the established authority within her house. As the representative of the Lord to his family, it is an indirect attack against the Lord. The next concerns a sorceress, someone who is attempting to usurp God's authority in several distinct ways. After that is the perverse act of bestiality. As man is created in God's image, it is a defilement of that and thus an offense against God. And finally, is the act of sacrificing to any God except the Lord. It is an offense against the one true God, Jehovah. Verse 16, if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her. The following two verses are called by Adam Clark an exceedingly wise and humane law. He is correct because a defiled woman would have often been looked at in a much less favorable light in consideration for marriage. Such would have been the case in earlier American history as well, but as time has gone by, for the most part, morality has continued downwards, and the thought of marrying an undefiled woman is seen as an anachronism. In fact, marriage itself is no longer considered of any importance to the majority of the people out there. But in Israel's earlier history, it was considered right that a woman would remain a virgin until she was married. Her virginity, however, was not only a valuable moral commodity, okay, it was also a valuable civil commodity. This is because of the custom of the bride price. Because of this practice, a man enticing a virgin to sleep with him was to be taken as a direct attack upon a precious, precious family possession. A little tongue twister there. Such an unmarried daughter would be counted as the father's property. The loss of her virginity would mean her value to him would be reduced. The word for entice here is the word patha. It means to lure or to entice someone to do something. This is the second use of it in the Bible, but the first time it was used in this way. The only other time it's been seen was in Genesis 9 verse 27, where it is translated as enlarge. 
This enticement might be by subtle persuasions, like being a Don Juan and alluring her to do something that she shouldn't do, for promises of marriage, or for some other type of reward or payment, but not specifically as a prostitute. The word for virgin here means exactly that. It is the Hebrew word betula, and it is the second time that it's seen in Scripture. The first was when referring to Rebecca way back in Genesis 24, verse 16. The verse qualifies her state, though. Not only is she a betula or a virgin, but she is also not betrothed. The reason why this qualifier is used here is because if she were betrothed, then a different outcome would be the result of what happens. This word for betrothed is aras, and it is properly translated. It means to espouse. It is the first of 11 times that it's going to be seen in the Old Testament. Now, as an interesting spiritual picture for the word entice and the word betrothed, they are both used in Hosea chapter 2 concerning the Lord's relationship with Israel. However, Hosea is quoted by both Paul concerning the church in the New Testament and Peter concerning Israel in the New Testament. And so the spiritual application is very complex and it requires careful study to fully understand. Someday we can go over that in a Bible study and you'll be astonished at how those two words in Hosea point to what's happening in redemptive history. First with the church age and then the return of the people of Israel back to God's good graces. However, in the case of such a virgin of Israel, should this type of thing come about, there was to be a penalty for what occurred. Verse 16 going on, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. The words for surely pay the bride price are mahor yimharena, endowing he shall endow the bride price. It is the same word, mahar, repeated twice, and these are the only two times that this word is used in the entire Bible. Mahar is derived from the noun mohar, which is in itself a very rare word in scripture. Once it is used to refer to the bride price for Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, if you know that story. Once it will be used in this account here in verse 17. And the final time is when David is asked to pay a bride price of 200 foreskins of Israel's enemies to King Saul for the price of his daughter Michal. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 18. It is important to know that quite a few translations here use the word dowry. You got dowry in your Bible instead of bride price? Anybody? Yes. He's shaking his head. Yes. Line that out. This is incorrect. It is not a dowry. A dowry is a transfer of the parent's property upon the marriage of their daughter. A bride price, on the other hand, is payment made by the groom or the groom's family to the parents of the bride. In essence, the dowry is some type of wealth passed from the family of the bride to the groom or the groom's family, ostensibly for the care of the bride. This bride price, though, is an amount settled on for the marriage of the bride by the parents of the bride. This is one reason why the virginity of the daughter was so important. The father had raised her, and it was his work and his effort which paid for her as she grew. Therefore, she is considered his investment. For a guy to do this, it could then deprive him of this repayment of his efforts by reducing or eliminating her value. Consequently, he had a right to claim compensation and the enticer was required to pay a sufficient amount to make the matter right. The bride price was set by the father. He could set it low if she weren't a treat to the eyes, or he could set it high if he knew that all of the guys in town wanted his daughter. 
The interesting account of Saul, which I referred to a minute ago, and David shows this. Here's what it says. And Saul commanded his servants, communicate with David secretly and say, look, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke those words in the hearing of David. And David said, does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am poor and lightly esteemed as a man? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, in this manner, David spoke. Then Saul said, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry. Once again, that's not correct. It's a bride price. But 104 skins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired. Therefore, David arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as a wife. As can be seen from this, the father set the bride price. In the case of Saul, he had hoped that the challenge of killing 200 Philistines would be too much and that David would die in the process. But David prevailed and he also got the girl. In the case here, however, the father is given two different options. If he is okay with what has happened and is the forgiving sort, he can demand the bride price from the enticer and allow him to marry her. This is seen in Deuteronomy chapter 22. If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin, who is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has humbled her. He shall not be permitted to, to divorce her all of his days. This amount, 50 shekels, was the highest amount required for the consecration vow of any person in Leviticus chapter 23. 50 shekels were set for a man in the prime of his life between 20 and 60 years of age. In other words, this act of the enticer was noted as an exceptionally grievous offense. The working years of the father were, in essence, stolen from him. In addition to paying this exceptional amount, the enticer was obligated to remain married to the woman for his entire life. The protections for the woman were especially strong in the Israelite society. However, there was another possibility. Verse 17, if her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay the money, pay the money according to the bride price of virgins. Im ma'en yema'en, if in refusing, he refuses. It could be that the father simply did not want this guy, this loser who had defiled his daughter to be his daughter's husband. In this case, he could still demand the 50 shekels and the enticer would get absolutely nothing. The word for pay here is shakal. It's its second use in scripture and it indicates to weigh. In this case, he is to weigh out the entire bride price of 50 shekels. If she were a beauty, the father may be able to secure another bride price off her and she would be set with a husband. If she weren't so lovely and she were also not a virgin, it could be that she would never get married. And so the money would be sufficient to take care of her as an unmarried woman in her father's house. Or, as a third option, some or all of the money could be used by the father to entice someone to marry her. Maybe she was his only child and he longed for grandchildren. No matter which, the payment of the bride price legally reinstated her status as a virgin in the house and from then on as a legally divorced woman, not bearing any reproach. 
Also, I mentioned earlier that the term virgin is qualified by the term not betrothed. The importance of this is that if she were betrothed to another man, then a different outcome would result. Here's what it says from Deuteronomy 22. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, so you shall put away the evil from among you. Although this might sound harsh against the woman, it is not. If this occurred in the city and she did not cry out, then it's obvious that she was a willing participant in this action, which was a crime against her fiancé, her father, and her family. As a protection for a woman who was raped, Outside of the city, Deuteronomy 22 goes on. But if a man finds a betrothed woman in the countryside and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so it is in this matter. For he found her in the countryside and the betrothed young woman cried out, but there was no one to save her. As we can see by this account and its more detailed explanation found in Deuteronomy, the actions of Joseph, the betrothed of Mary, the mother of Jesus, were exceptionally pious. Here's what it says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Even before learning the truth of what happened with Mary, he was willing to put her away secretly rather than having her stoned for what he thought was an act of adultery. Finally, concerning the loss of morality in the world over the years, Charles Ellicott looks to verses 16 and 17 and he says this, It might be well if modern societies would imitate the Mosaic Code on this point by some similar proviso. He's right. If such a proviso and a system existed and was adhered to, it would surely improve the morality within the society. Unfortunately, we have gone way too far into the world of depravity to probably ever recover from the pit that we're in. Verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. The word for sorceress is kashaf. It means to practice sorcery, but it is in the feminine singular, and so it refers to a female who practices sorcery, a witch. Different opinions on why women are singled out have been given. Two reasons that seem sound are culturally, witchcraft was something more often practiced by women, thus the feminine is given to represent the class. Secondly, it was to show that no pity was to be given to such an offender, even if they were of the weaker sex. In considering this verse, it doesn't make any distinction as to whether the witchcraft was real or a sham. Anyone who claimed such abilities was not to be allowed to live. This was because such practices seduced people away from their allegiance to God and his judgments. It also involved matters of the future, which is something belonging to God alone. By claiming knowledge of the future, it was claiming to be, as it were, equal to God in the ability to tell the future. In Leviticus 20, this is expanded on to include men. Here's what it says. A man or a woman who is a medium or as familiar spirits, shall surely be put to death. So it includes both, a man and a woman. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. 
In 1 Samuel 28, almost the entire chapter is written about King Saul's going to the witch of Endor to call up the spirit of Samuel the prophet. It's an exciting account, and the text clearly shows that she did raise Samuel's spirit, which then conversed with Saul. If you remember the TV show Bewitched, the mother's name, Endora, having come from the very account in the Bible, Endora became Endora. Verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. This is further explained in Leviticus chapter 18. It says, nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. Bestiality is considered contrary to nature, and it is perverse. However, Israel left Egypt, where it was believed to have been practiced, and they were heading to Canaan, where it was a custom of the people. And so to ensure that, they were, that this was completely unacceptable to God, they are told this now. The penalty for a person practicing this perversion was mot yumat, dying he shall die. Verse 20, he who sacrifices to any God except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. This verse is only an initial verse, which is going to be built on in the law. Sacrifice in this case is noted, but it will eventually encompass any type of worship, including false prophecies and so on. In these words is the first use of the word haram in the whole Bible. It and the associated noun harem is an especially important tenet of doctrine. It means accursed or anathematized. It signifies a complete withdrawal from the Lord and a perverting to the exact opposite. Kyle says that he shall be put to death and by death devoted to the Lord whom he would not devote himself in life. John Lang gives even more insight by saying this. It may be that a sort of irony lies in the note of the harem as being consecration reversed. It secures to God the glory of belonging to him alone, but it does this also as being consecration to the judging God in his judgment. Such a person was to be wholly devoted as a ban offering to God, and there could be no possibility of redemption for that person. For a classic example of this type of penalty, you can read the account of Achan, which is found in Joshua chapter 7. It's a very, very scary passage. Paul uses the same concept to explain the severity of polluting the gospel of Jesus Christ in Galatians chapter 1. Let me read it to you. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That would be the Hebrew word harem, or anathematized. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. To pervert the gospel requires the most severe curse because it is the only message which can bring man back to the very God who requires our wholehearted obedience and affection. Oh God, we have offended you in so many ways. We have defiled ourselves in your sight and we have continued on for countless days. Who can purify us and make us right? We have knocked on wood and read the horoscope. We have had our palms read and used the Ouija board. We have surely performed proved unworthy, each and every one a dope. Surely we are deserving of your swift and sharpened sword. We have done that which is perverse and called it good. We have become ourselves an unclean thing. We deserve your wrath. This is understood, 
but instead you sent us Jesus, us, to yourself to bring. For this marvelous mercy let our voices ring, and for this wondrous grace to you praises we shall ever sing. Our second thought is offenses against humanity. It's verses 21 through 27. Verse 21, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. This verse follows logically after the last one. Although it was an accursed defense to follow after foreign gods, it was an admonition of the Lord to not mistreat nor oppress a stranger, meaning a foreigner. Obviously, if they were foreigners, then they wouldn't know the Lord. By mistreating them, they would then never come to know the Lord. Further, they were to remember this because of their own past, having come out of Egypt, which is subtly explained in the very words he chooses to use. The Hebrew word for mistreat is yana. This is its first use in scripture. He's making a point with that. But the word for oppress is lachatz. This is first used in Exodus 3, verse 9. It said there, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen their, the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Israel was oppressed and the Lord delivered them. There was no reason for them to assume that they wouldn't receive his judgment for acting in the same manner towards foreigners among them. Verse 22, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Other than Tamar, who is the daughter-in-law of Judah, who bore Judah's child, widows have never been mentioned in scripture. And this verse introduces yatom, or orphans, into the pages of the Bible as well. Both the widow and the orphan have a very special place in the Lord's heart. They, along with the foreigner, were not to be abused or taken advantage of. Instead, in several passages, they are later commanded to actively bless them and care for them. And rather than giving the penalty for such mistreatment to the people, who could all become numb to their plight in times of moral decay or famine in the land, the Lord reserved the judgment for such infractions to himself. Verse 23, if you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. There is an emphasis in the Hebrew which is not evident in our translations. There's a threefold repetition of words. The verse says, Im ane ta'ane, oto ki im tsaok yitzak, ele shamoa eshma sa'akato. If afflicting, you afflict them in any way, crying they, and crying they cry unto me, hearing I will hear their cry. You can see this stress which is found in the Hebrew. The emphasis is certainly given to show the severity of the offense and the surety of his hearing their cries. Should this become standard in the land, there would be strict judgment for the abuse. Verse 24, and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword and your wife shall be widows and your children fatherless. The penalty from the Lord for such treatment is that they would in turn be killed so that their own wives and children would then be susceptible to the same treatment that they had wrongfully meted out themselves towards the aliens and the widows and the orphans. The mistreatment of these three classes obviously became very commonplace in Israel's history. By the time of Jeremiah, he actively called out on several occasions for the ending of such treatment. One example is found in Jeremiah chapter 7 where it says this, for if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I give to your, gave to your fathers forever and ever. 
Jeremiah goes on and he repeats the admonition later in his writings. And Ezekiel uses similar words against them, explaining the sins of Jerusalem and thus the reason for their punishment. Even to the last book of the Old Testament, the Lord was still warning the people concerning this. Here's what it says from the last book, Malachi. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners, earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? Well, I just told you in all of these ways, which include the very precept that we're looking at right now. Verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. The poor or ani are introduced into the Bible at this time. But the fact that there is a word to describe them indicates that the poor already existed. Later in the law, and then by the mouth of Jesus himself, we will learn that the poor will always be among us. In the case of Israel, dealing with the poor Israelites, they were not to act as moneylenders by becoming their creditors. This is also a new concept in the Bible, the nasha or the creditor. For any Israelite who is poor, money could be lent to them, but without neshek or interest. Another new term in scripture. All of these had to have existed, but the Lord is forbidding the practice among their own people. This noun, neshek, or interest, comes from the verb nashak, which means to bite. If one were to charge interest from a poor person, it would be as if allowing a serpent to bite him. Matters for the poor man would only get worse, not better. And so the Lord forbids it. Verse 26, if you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. The concept of taking a pledge comparable to what modern pawnbrokers do, was not unknown in Israelite society. But there were restrictions such as this one right here. The word for pledge is chabal, which is a verb meaning to bind. A pledge then is something which is seen as binding on someone, or it binds them, it hinders them. If the pledge were their garment, it then implied that this was all that they had worth pawning. And because of this, it was to be returned out of compassion for the poor person who had nothing else. And the reason is next explicitly given. Verse 27, for that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? If someone had to pawn their own cloak, then they were truly destitute. When the day was ending and the sun was going down, it would get cold. In the case of a poor person, their garment would be used as their night covering. Without having the pledge returned, the obvious question then is, what will he sleep in? It would be unjust in the extreme to allow him to suffer at night because of a pledge which would otherwise sit unused, serving no purpose at all. Each day the cloak would be returned to the creditor as a sign of the pledge. But if it was withheld at night, it would be a wanton act of cruelty. Verse 27 going on, and it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Should someone so mistreat their own neighbor in such a vile way, it is certain that the person would lay in unease throughout the entire night and cry out to the Lord in their misfortune. In his cries, the Lord promises that he will hear. What is implied but what is unstated is that when the Lord hears, he will also judge and act. And the reason is, ki chanun ani, for gracious I am. 
This is the first time that the adjective chanun or gracious is used in the whole Bible. And all 13 times that it is used, it is ascribed either to God or to the Lord. Thus, it is one of his personal attributes. Therefore, to be ungracious to one's neighbor was to shun one of the very attributes of the Lord and to set oneself up in opposition to him. The Lord expected mercy. If it was withheld, judgment was due. Two important verses on this same concept are found in the New Testament, one in Matthew, one in James. Here's what it says in Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And then James goes on in verse 213, for judgment is without mercy to the one who is shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord, give us hearts that will have compassion. Help us to be right with our fellow man. Let it not be just a temporary, short-lived fashion, but instill in us the desire to do the best we can. When a neighbor needs our helping hand, grant us the sense to reach out and offer it freely. Keep us from tying in some personal demand. When you look on our hearts, we pray you see only purity. Let our tender mercies to others be acceptable in your sight, and may we forever strive to be pleasing to you. Help us to be charitable to our neighbor, always living right. Let these, O Lord, be the things that we are inclined to do. Our third thought today is honoring the Lord, verses 28 through 31. Verse 28, you shall not revile God. The words in Hebrew are Elohim lo tekelel. These words are translated in several ways. You shall not revile God, you shall not revile the gods, or you shall not revile the judges. The word Elohim can mean any, but the gods makes no sense at all. There is one God and all other gods are false and are to be reviled. If it is judges, then the next clause might not seem needed, and so that's probably incorrect as well. Rather, this is speaking of God, who is the fountain of justice and power. This then leads naturally to the second half of the verse. Verse 28 going on, nor curse a ruler of your people. The rulers of the people of Israel derived their authority from God. And therefore, to curse him was to lay a curse upon the Lord who established the ruler of the people. This part of verse 28 is actually cited by Paul in Acts 23, verse 5, during a trial with the ruling council where he notes the high priest as the ruler of the people. The entire verse in substance is repeated several times in Scripture and in both Testaments, where honoring the Lord and honoring a ruler of the people are tied hand in hand. In all, verses 20 through 28 are summed up by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, verse 17, which says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Verse 29, you shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. This verse is an idiomatic phrase in the Hebrew, which wouldn't make any sense at all to us if it was translated literally. It actually and quite beautifully says, your fullness and your trickling you shall not delay. The imagery is alive and it's active in the Hebrew, even if we don't understand what it's saying. The fullness is the word melea, which means the first of ripe fruit. This is the first of only eight times it will be used in the Bible. It is the first of any grain or produce which the land puts forth and is harvested. The trickling is the word dema, and this is its only use in the Bible. It means vintage, and it comes from the word dama, which means a tear or to weep. It then is a poetical epithet for the produce of both the wine and the oil. As fruits are pressed, they then weep out their vintage. The first of all of these were to be gathered and made ready. 
Without delay, they were then to present them as the law will later detail. To delay in offering them would, as these things go, turn into a total neglect of presenting them. As Adam Clark says about this precept, the offering was a public acknowledgement of the beauty and goodness of God, who had given them their proper seed time, the first and latter rain, and the appointed weeks of harvest. Because of the beauty of the passage, what I would like you to do is take the time today to read the accompanying ritual that goes along with this command that we're looking at. It's found in Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 through 11. Don't want to read it. We'd be here for a while, but it's really a pretty passage. Verse 29 continues. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. The firstborn of the sons of Israel were likewise to be given to God. Their consecration was mandated in Exodus chapter 13, and it is repeated here with the words that they are not to delay in this consecration. The consecration for Jesus is recorded in Luke chapter 2. Here's what it says about him. Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Verse 30, likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. Unlike a person that was to be redeemed, a firstborn animal remained the property of the Lord and it was to be sacrificed to him. The term oxen here is incorrect. It should be cattle. All oxen and cows fall under the term cattle, but not all cattle are oxen and cows. Oxen are working animals, whereas cows are females kept for milk, meat, or breeding. Both, however, are being referred to here. The firstborn male of such an animal was to be with its mother seven days. The reason for the seven days is debated, but two good reasons are noted. The first is for the comfort of the mother, which needed relief through the suckling process. You know, its offspring needed to drink milk and it needed to get rid of that milk. The second is impurity, which is involved in the birthing process. For these or for whatever other reason, the animal was to be there with its mother until the seventh day, and then it would be given over to the Lord. Verse 31, and you shall be holy men to me. This thought here that we just read sums up the entire passage in one succinct thought. It was first given to Israel in Exodus 19 with these words. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. With their own voices, they had accepted that covenant with the Lord and had obligated themselves to the law, which he is now giving them. This holiness necessitated outward rituals. But these outward things could not make a person either pleasing to God or inwardly holy. Okay. However, in order to keep the need for inward purity always before their minds, they were given these outward rituals. By having them, the intent was to lead them to live in an inwardly holy manner as well. Going on, a thought which is tied into this holiness, that of Israel's dietary restrictions, is given. Verse 31 going on. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. The eating of meat which was torn by beasts was forbidden for two reasons. The first is that it had not been properly bled, making it unclean to the Hebrews. Okay. Secondly, the beast which was torn by an animal would have been unclean if it was an unclean animal which had torn it, and thus it would pass on its own ceremonial defilement. Hence, there was defilement in both ways. Eating such meat, however, 
was not some sort of unpardonable sin as we see in you know rabbinical Judaism today. In Leviticus chapter 17, instructions were given which supplement this early prohibition in Exodus. Listen to this. And every person who eats what died naturally or was torn by beasts, whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. So if he eats a, a torn animal, he's not really unclean, is he? Okay, let me finish with that verse. It says, but if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. Therefore, it cannot be that eating meat in and of itself makes one unclean. It was already inside their body. Rather, the external washing signified the internal knowledge that they had transgressed the Lord's commandment. It is, as always, the intent of the heart which is being evaluated. Remember that one precept from this sermon, and you'll do very well. The intent of the heart is what God is always looking at. Verse 31 finishes with these words, you shall throw it to the dogs. Again, like the previous words, this is further explained in Deuteronomy 14. You shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who's within your gates that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner for you are a holy people to the Lord, your God. The idea of throwing the carcass to the dogs was to show that the flesh was to be abhorred by the people. Again, it was an outward demonstration of inward purity. If there was a foreigner around, it could be passed on to them. The term dog is not unknown as a metaphor for aliens in scripture, or it could be given to literal dogs. As we conclude, we should look back at the three major sections of today's verses. The first was offenses against God, and then offenses against humanity, and then honoring the Lord. All of these require more than just external acts in order to be complete. They also require inward purity. But we, by our very nature, we lack this. It takes real effort to keep our hearts on what is doing right and our minds free from defilement. It's so easy to dismiss reading a horoscope as just being a fun thing to do. It is so easy to buy a new car or a house and then to forget about thanking the Lord for it and asking him to bless it. And how many times have we given our attention to false gods at one time or another in our lives? Money, sex, additions, you know, little statues, whatever. But there is an answer for each one of these failings. It is Jesus. He came and he perfectly fulfilled all of these precepts in this law. And we are now admonished to fix our eyes on him. And think about that. We only went through, what, 10 or 12 verses today? He perfectly fulfilled all of these. And I bet you if we were to say, did I do this my whole life? None of us could say I've done any of them, right? I mean, we've all ignored the, the widow and the alien and the the orphan and all of the other things that we've done but he perfectly fulfilled this on our behalf in so doing we will always have the perfect example of how to conduct our lives towards God and towards our fellow man just keeping our eyes on him let each of us rededicate ourselves to him today and for those who have never taken the first step of receiving Jesus Christ today would be a good day for you to do that the reason why is we don't know our final end we talked about that before we made a prayer today so we may wake up one morning or maybe even, you know, not wake up, just die in bed. We may get up and have a stroke like one of our friend's um, brothers-in-law did. We don't know our end. And so we have to be ready at all times to meet the Lord. And the Bible makes it so hugely simple that it just astonishes me that people are unwilling to do it. I have sinned. I have sinned. It's the hardest thing in the world for a person to do until he's done it. And then you look back and you say, what was so difficult about that? I have sinned. 
I know that I need a savior to take care of this sin debt. I can't do it myself. Another really hard thing to do. I'm not involved in the process of getting myself to heaven. I have to rely on somebody else. And then once you do it, you think, what was I thinking? Why didn't I do that? All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord who fulfilled this law on our behalf. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. This is what I would pray for anybody watching this video today that you have just got to get this right before your final moment passes. And don't reinsert any portion of the law. Don't reinsert Sabbath observance. Don't re reinsert dietary restrictions or any other thing. If you don't want to eat meat, don't. There's nothing wrong with that. If you do want to worship on a Saturday, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you are doing it to please God, in order to be right with God, you have fallen from grace and you're back under this law. And God says that that is Paul, you saw that verse, it is to be anathematized. It is harem. You cannot do that. It is to be accursed. Jesus Christ fulfilled that law. Trust in Jesus Christ and nothing else. Don't do anything you don't want to do. Do anything you want to do as long as it's within the constraints of what's right and proper. But make sure that you do it not to earn God's favor. You've already received the grace. Just receive the grace. Our closing verse comes from 1 Timothy 1. It's the fifth verse. Now listen to this. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. All of these things we looked at here. Remember, it says, don't eat anything that's torn by an animal. It says, throw it to the dogs. And then we read a little bit later in the law that if you eat something torn by an animal, wash yourself. Well, that food is already inside you. You're already defiled by the law, right? So what, is, what good is the washing going to do? It comes from faith. I'm washing because God says I'll be clean after doing this. It doesn't wash out the food inside of you, does it? Everything. Let me read that to you again. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Everything you do, do in faith. And Paul says if it's not in faith, it's sin. Okay? Next week is Exodus 21, 1 through 9. These are important instructions for me and you. It's entitled Justice, Justice, You Shall Do. That'll be our 62nd Exodus sermon. I said it would be the face of the Lord. That's two sermons away, I think. Anyway, um, I want you to know that that title to that sermon coming up next week, Justice, Justice, You Shall Do. I once, um, when I was in college, had to interview somebody of another religion and uh, do a report on it. Okay, And I went over and I, I called all the rabbis in town and none of them would meet with me. But one of them had a couple of Holocaust survivors in his congregation. And he says, these guys won't be swayed by this guy. And so he sent me over to them. And I met them, and it was very nice to talk to them. They were completely misguided about what being a Christian means, completely. When I answered, I, I told them I will not talk about my faith at all. All I want to know is your answer to my questions. But at the end, I said, if you have any questions, I was sneaky about it. I gave them a little in, and he said, um, if you have any questions for me, what are they? And he asked some questions, and he said, that's not at all what I was taught. Things about Mary, about the Trinity, completely misrepresented by the Jews that he you know, studied under. But anyway, the one thing that I learned from him is he said that many times during our interview, justice, justice, you shall do. But he used it not in the way that we're going to use it as in faith. He used it as a way of being right with God, a work in order to please God. And there is a difference. But anyway, I've remembered Mr. Sha'al and his beautiful wife with the uh, title of next week's sermon. I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. 
He has a good plan and a purpose for you. And even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right, I got a poem for you today based on these verses. And unfortunately, Beth left early with her uh, family and all to go out to the Israel rally because uh, she'd get a little kick out of one one line in the uh, poem. Uh, Acting in a moral manner, it's called, if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. Yes, he shall do it for sure. If her father utterly refuses to give him her to him, being sure that for his daughter he is not so nice, he shall pay money according to the virgin's bride price. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. No mercy to that one you shall give. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death, whether his name is Sam or her name is Beth. He who sacrifices to any god except to the Lord only, he shall utterly be destroyed. This command comes directly from me. You shall not mistreat a stranger nor him oppress, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, your land of duress. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way, and they cry at all to me with cries so wild, I will surely hear their cry, this to you I say. And my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows, such will be their lot, and your children fatherless, such is my word. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest, such you shall not do. If you ever take as a pledge your neighbor's garment or gown, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. If you take that, then what will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious, you see. You shall not revile God, nor ruler of your people curse. Toward your leaders, you shall not be terse. You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices too, The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. These things you shall do. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. It you shall not keep. You are to be obedient in all these ways. And you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. To any temptation to eating them, you shall not yield. These precepts from the Old Testament are a mirror. They show us how far away from your glory we truly are. But hallelujah, you have taken away the terror. Through Christ you have removed every stain and mar. O God, help us to live by your law, that which honors you, the covenant sealed in the blood of Jesus. Help us to remain steadfast and true. Yes, grant this favor to each one of us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for getting us through these verses. There are times where uh, it's it's very hard to put together something that is coherent and which is edifying to the congregation and there are sections like this and uh, they they have purpose they have uh, importance they show your heart but they don't always uh, they don't always tickle the ear and uh, we need to go through those as well and I thank you that we do I thank you that we are able to process these because eventually the precept comes up again somewhere in your word whether it's the birth of Jesus or whether it's the treatment of the people of Israel or whatever else, these verses here are just as important to us, even though they might not be as fancy to listen to. So I thank you for the people that are willing to do so, that are willing to bend their ear and to learn your word and then to be able to weave those things into their future theology, understanding you that much better. And for every person on YouTube as well, each person that clicks that video 
blesses my heart. You know that Prophecy Update is something I did for one reason, and that was to get people to watch these sermons and to know your word and thus to fellowship closer with you. And for those few that do, I am so grateful. May you bless each one of them today. May they just be poured out an abundant blessing because of their willingness to learn your word, even through difficult passages. Lord, again, we raise up, um, uh, what was his name? Carpenter, James Carpenter, I believe it was. James Carpenter, the brother-in-law of a person that we know that had a stroke, and I would pray that uh, his eyes would be open to the truth if he comes out of whatever state he's in. I would pray that uh, uh, maybe others that are close to him would also evaluate their own lives and make the decision for Jesus before it's too late. Lord, we do love you. We exalt you. We praise you. You are so good to us. Thank you for every single detail of your word. Thank you for every minute detail of our lives, which you take care of. You lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. How wonderful you are. And we love you and we praise you because of it. And we do it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we get the instructions for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. We would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, olam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have given a blessing over this as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself. I know I repeated that. I got out of order in my head there. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <coughs> Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. 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 I uh, feel bad for Nicole. I saw her all during the sermon just shivering. Oh, and uh, she's like me. She doesn't have a lot of meat on her bones. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I asked a couple people when we first got here, how is it? Should I turn it up? Should I turn it down? And, and uh, I, I have to say this now that the, the thing is over, is that for the past day and a half, I've had a really high fever. I have not been feeling well. And I just want to thank the Lord. That, you know, I woke up this morning. I felt well enough to come here. But uh, I'm completely off. I mean, my brain isn't thinking, and I hope the prophecy update looks good because we'll see. Just you know how when your brain isn't tracking properly, it's been a it's been a long day and a half. So anyway, we'll thank the Lord that we're here, Heavenly Father. We do thank you that we got through this service, and uh, I pray for each person here that they heard something that will bless them, and uh, that they will see that this world has become so perverse, and to not worry about those things, but to fix their eyes on you. And to know that all of these things are temporary and will pass. And that you have a good end for those who are strong and persevere in Christ. Put their faith in him. That the way of the world will be gone. And we'll be living in a body that is so wonderful. And in an environment that is so astonishing. That we will never think of anything but the glory that you have given us again. We long for that day. We take this Lord's Supper in commemoration of the means that made it possible, the death of our Lord Jesus. And uh, we do pray that that day will be soon. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.